This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Of course, Warren Buffett, known for his uh, acumen and what a good man he has been as an investor, he and Charlie Munger, uh, great stock pickers, not just good company owners. But the stock picks uh, changed quite a bit uh, in a 13F filing we got yesterday. Uh, most notably, at least to me, was uh, adding Tifa Pharmaceuticals and getting out of IBM. Noah Buhar joins us uh, right now, the news finance reporter who covers Berkshire for us. And Noah, uh, I, I can't figure out, and I've been trying to do the work, if he, he might have actually made a little bit of money in IBM. But not uh, what he thought he was going to have have happen. Yeah, I mean, I think to to get to a full answer there, you you you'd want to look at uh, the you know any dividends that that he was paid. Um, True, I guess he he would have been made some money if that were their dividends yeah, over the course I mean, of a five year investment. The, 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 this much we know. I mean, the average purchase price for for a lot of that IBM stake was uh, around one hundred and seventy dollars. And if you look at where IBM's been trading recently. Um, it's trading 156 right now, exactly. and that's up a lot from where it was. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, this this was um, for a lot of years uh, money that he invested that that uh, you know to be generous didn't go anywhere. And at certain points over the last several years, when he held it, was was underwater. I mean, there were disclosures I remember in Berkshire filings that some quarters it was under underwater by about two and a half billion dollars, and 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 that ballpark. So it's it's really one of these rare instances where um, Buffett has has bet big and and it hasn't gone well. When in 2011 when he got involved in the stock started jumping Carol. In 2011 the company had a 15.9 billion dollar profit. Last year it had a 6 billion dollar profit. So it is a much smaller company than when he invested in the fact that the stock has done as well as it has it really belies the fact that the company is a lot smaller than it ever was. Mhm. Yeah, and I think part of Buffett's premise uh, going through this was that IBM was an aggressive share repurchaser. He he, he liked the way that um, uh, you know a phrase he often uses that the uh, companies he likes you know have a reverence for the shareholder, and um, I, I I think that was part of the story here. Um, but the but the bigger issue and the bigger thing to say about this is that you know for years Buffett avoided investing in technology stocks because he. he you know, said they were outside his area of expertise. And, um, you know, IBM was his first really big foray into investing in tech, and it, and it went poorly. Um, but it's important to note that he hasn't given up on the idea that he probably should be invested in tech, given how um, some of the world's largest companies these days are are tech firms. Um, he has a major new position in Apple, which is, you know, three times bigger than, than what IBM uh, was, uh, you know, around its peak. So wait, Noah's right. So we've got Teva in, IBM out, Apple in, Kraft Heinz, not so sure what it's going to do, what's next here. Um, is this representative of Warren Buffett or is it Todd Combs? Because he's got other guys who are really helping him to make the investments. We've kind of seen as they've gotten more involved, like the investments in Apple and some other interesting, maybe newer way of thinking companies. Sure, sure. Yeah, Apple was actually initiated by one of one of his 
deputies, but but given the size of the investment now, I think Buffett's you know publicly said that he's he's responsible for most of the Apple investment now. Um, but when it comes to to Teva, for instance, that's about. Uh, $365 million position, something like that tends to be either Todd Combs or Ted Weschler, uh, mm-hmm. the, the uh, investment managers at Berkshire. Bu- Buffett has said that, you know, you, you know it's him when it's, when it's, you know, a large position. So north of, north of a billion dollars, maybe, maybe several billion dollars. Well, and, and, I, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting here. I mean, I, I never really bought into the notion that he didn't understand tech. I, I think that was like, oh, he's old, he's slow, he doesn't understand tech, you know, these, these dang kids and their newfangled phones. <laughs> I, I think what he really was talking about was he didn't understand the stupid valuations that businesses that were growing, uh, that, that a, a semiconductor company growing earnings at a, make it up 20% uh, a clip over years, getting a 40 times multiple, but a paper maker who's growing earnings at a 30% clip is getting a 10x multiple. And I think that that was, the, I, I really, I've looked at these quotes that he had, and I, I can't pull them up in front of me, but it, it struck me that that was the way he looks at technology. I don't understand it, the it being the valuation of the market, not the technology itself. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a that's a good point, and and also you know Buffett's someone who likes to invest in companies that he can feel feel good that they'll be around over the long haul, and uh, you know as we know with technology. Uh, they, you know, some of these companies, it's it's harder for them to establish the kinds of business moats that that he likes, and you know, in in Apple, for instance, they have an incredibly sticky ecosystem of products that keeps people um, buying iPhones and uh, you know, increasingly using their services. So it's, it, 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 yeah. I think that's a, that's a factor here too. And being all in Berkshire boosted Apple, uh, was it also BNY Mellon, Monsanto, USB, and then they reduced, uh, Berkshire reduced in IBM, General Motors, uh, Wells Fargo, um, a few other names, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, I mean, this is what we typically see, right? Sanofi, that was another one. He, they reduced their stake. Any, any I think just, Wells Fargo is really interesting, well, and, given his long-term support of that company. Right. 20 seconds left here. Is there any key takeaway for kind of the general investment audience that we can make here? Yeah, I just think, you know, more, you know, continued rotation out of IBM into Apple and a couple new interesting names. Good stuff. Noah. Man. Thank you. Noah do radio all the time. That was good. Well, we try. He's a busy Nor guy. Do I, He's he, covers, uh, he covers Berkshire for us so well. Yes. He listens to the news. All right, check this out, everybody. This next company says it has created the world's first artificial intelligence wellness companion. Great for those who run, like our own Corey Johnson. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about this company. And lucky for us, Omri Yofi is co-founder and CEO at LifeBeam, which has created something called the V. It's a Fitbit-style set of earphones that uses AI to guide workout goals. He joins us right here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. You are based in New York, so lucky that you came in. Um, Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Tell us about this device. You sent me one. I've been taking a look at it. Um, It's called the V. What is it? Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. So V, as you said, V is your personal trainer for body and mind using artificial intelligence and voice. Uh, In very short, you just uh, buy a good pair of earphones uh, with sound by Harman Kardon. You guys supply the headset. Exactly. Exactly. And the minute you unbox it, V will introduce yourself. We'll get your goals. If you want to lose weight, start running, or just maintain stress. 
And pretty quickly, she will start a journey together with you towards your goals using voice and text, where voice is the most engaging and, I think, innovating thing that we're bringing to market. What's the AI part of it? So basically, V will take approximately two hours to get to know you. So mm-hmm. you will train together with her. She will give you some you know, basic uh, commoditized stuff that you have in all other apps, such as tracking and such as music. But most exciting, she will adapt to you over time. So she will understand your heart rate zones. She will understand your step rate. She will understand your other physiology threshold and uh, gradually will start training you towards your goal. So what is it that you know about runners that they don't know about themselves? So I think there are two uh, interesting areas. The, the, the more practical one is just the ability to translate lots of data into a conversation and experience. You don't want to boost people with tons of info and graphs and stats. People are all fed up with this pretty overwhelming tech that they get into their trackers and into their uh, phones, earphones, and apps. I mean, I actually said to our producer, sometimes I just want to do. I want to do my workout. Absolutely. I don't really care if I hit these metrics. I just want to go yeah. work out. And, and let's give a practical example. If you want to burn fat, I will not say a word or send any screen or notification. The only thing we will say is just step to the beat. Just we'll drop you a beat and we'll help you coach in real time using voice exactly like a regular. It can be a Peloton or a personal trainer trainers gives you in real time. Ah. And that's the beauty of, again, translating lots of data into a compelling, almost human experience so using t- voice. So tell me, because I've got a Peloton and I do use it and I've already got a headset because I want to tap into the class there, yep. either a live one or part of the library. So yep. tell me how I can use this with that so we are currently and i i can share more info but regardless other integrations we're currently being super careful and delivering a fully gated experience with our device in other words when you put the device on yourself you'll get your heart rate and your steps and cadence and and weather around you and lots of other cool stuff um and you will get i will call it a peloton style but much more personalized level experience for running and walking Cycling-wise, then classes-wise, on our roadmap and some very exciting partnerships in pipeline, uh, still early to talk about. Hmm. Do, uh, do you, are there sort of typical things that you take a runner through as they get a little bit faster or a little bit more strength? Or is it really sort of listening to what their sort of level is? I've, you know, my friends who train with heart, uh, heart rate monitors and are usually the triathlete geeks who will buy any piece of equipment, anyone will sell them, but really work at training at, at you know, max capacity, um, you know, a lot of, it's a big deal in Silicon Valley, right? As you can imagine, yeah. teched out geeks yeah. in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, Keith Raboy, uh, a great uh, tech investor with Coastal Ventures, yeah. is always posting his max VO heart rate after a 40-minute workout. And I think, my God, is he still alive? Yeah. Um, uh, but, but those, you know, it would seem that that's one way to train. There's probably somewhere between not monitoring it and monitoring everything. That's correct. That's correct. And I, I want to build on what you said to, to just to explain uh, – my passion and our passion, I think, of, on, our, on our true mission, it's beyond AI and some cool technology. Our mission is to democratize and to lower the barrier of the regular human being out there. It doesn't matter if it's in New York, Middle America, or Japan. It doesn't matter to get a, an adaptive, personalized coaching to be healthier and happier. And the reason I say it, 75% of our users are not the guy you talked about. These are beginners to yeah. average guys trying either to lose weight or to maintain fitness. So we can give those VO2 max and those, you know, training peak style 
insights. What we care about is hold people's hands and motivate them beyond just giving them some smart uh, tracking. I love that you said democratize. Um, just quickly, just got about 25 seconds. How sure much? Thing. What does this cost, though? It's uh, one thing. Currently, uh, the MSRP is $249. we are currently going to $199 promotion in our site and on Amazon. Uh, selling directly and starting to expand across other channels as well. One last question. Be quick. Are you working with healthcare companies? We are starting to do some very interesting corporate wellness programs, and we're already connected to Apple Health Kit and Google Fit. All right. Cool stuff. Will you come back and tell us how things are going? Say again? Will you come back and tell us how things are going? Absolutely. Okay. Happy to. Thanks for having us, guys. Really Cheers. interesting. Omri Yofi, he is co-founder, chief executive officer of uh, LifeBeam. They're based in New York and uh, on this Thursday in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Alternative investments is in the eye of the beholder. Cleo Chang joins us right now, the head of alternative investments in American Century. Uh, with a discussion about this, uh, what, how do you guys define alternative investments? Because remember, there was a point when small caps were considered alternative right, investments. Right, just who you talk to. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I think uh, at American Century, we would define alternative as investment strategies that goes uh, beyond loan-only investments. So strategies that may incorporate any type of shorting or hedging strategies. Um, also, investment strategies that take on a more absolute return type of uh, performance profile. So, you know, investors are not getting uh, returns in the teens or in the 20s, uh, but in, in in the same time, they also limit their downsides uh, to a more managed uh, magnitude than, you know, sometimes we can observe in the equities and other parts of the capital markets. How did these strategies do in the downturn that we just recently saw in the equity markets? That's a great question. Um, you know, this is, I think, been a, a rude awakening uh, for a lot of investors, given uh, how well the market performed in 2017. Overall, based on the data that we've seen so far, alternative strategies in general has provided investors with a relatively significant downside protection. Looking at the equity hedged type of strategy, so these are long-short equities, uh, so they're not 100% long the portfolio, so they usually have some short positions. Those strategies, on average, provided somewhere between 40 to 60 percent downside protection versus the S&P or a sort of world equity benchmark. That's so good. We think, you know, yeah, that you want you want, you want long short to behave like that. That's why we yeah, have sure. long short. That's right. That's right. So, you know, we're not expected to to give clients necessarily 80 or 100 percent downside protection. But I think in a time like this, 40 to 60 percent downside protection uh, can give the investors a lot of comfort um, are these, uh, are to these, remain in the market. Are these act, active shorts or is this 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 says a former active short seller, I'll, I'll warn you about my bias. Are these actual short sellers trying to find crummy stocks that people shouldn't own and shorting them? Or is it just this this lazy index against, you know, or betting against the index or the inverse of the index? That's a great question. I think during during normal market environments, we would expect the single name shorts, right? Like you said, the finding the really crummy uh, stocks and short them uh, to to perform better than just shorting the broad markets. But I think during what we saw last week, where the broad market sold off, um, you know, your sort of ETF shorts or you know index future shorts probably gave you as good of a protection as those single name shorts. Um. 
I know you guys, the goal is for lower sensitivity to interest rate moves, um, and that's one of um, you know the initiatives that you guys go after. Having said that, we are you know expecting a higher rate environment. So how does that shape maybe the alternative investment someone might want to seek out? Sure. So for those alternative strategies that has a sort of income orientation or is designed to give investors more steady income, current income generation, um, it, we've been um, designing the product to be different from traditional fixed income funds where we have a shorter duration. So with that, the strategy by itself would be less um, sensitive to rising interest rates. So, you know, if we look back in the market in 2013, uh, we all remember the taper tantrum, right? This is when the Fed first announced that, you know, we could be potentially on the path to, to uh, raising rates. Right. And we saw that year the broad U.S. fixed income market uh, measured by the aggregate index had its first negative year in a long time. So I think as now we're actually seeing rates uh, start to go up, we're seeing some of that playing out again. So year to date, uh, the broad U.S. core fixed income market um, has generated a negative return from investors, which historically has been the, the safe haven, you know, as, um, you know, equity markets right. may experience higher volatility. Um, but, Do you feel you like know, at, at this point we've seen this big move in the vol? We saw suddenly, you know, stocks actually like go down for <laughs> to a notable amount that there is a new appetite for because you know when i talk to my friends who run long short for, uh, funds when they have short only funds those very few that are out there they're really good short sellers inflows are tough but they're starting to come back and yeah. I, I wonder if it has something to do with people have an appetite and are actually thinking you know something could be around the corner i want to have some short exposure now you know i was very lucky in my career to to be running a, a, a good size short only portfolio you know, I had a great year in 07, but I was lucky enough to be running in 08 when my numbers were, you know, my outperformance wasn't as good, but my ultimate numbers were fantastic. Well, that 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 sounds like, you know, you have a great set of skills shorting stocks because, you know, to have um, running a sort of directionally short book and uh, deliver sort of a good performance over a full market cycle is not an easy feat, to say the least. You know, I will say complacency uh, has been one of our biggest concerns for some time. Um, and to answer the question, we do think there's tangible data that shows investors are now um, being more active in allocating to alternatives. You know, some of the flow numbers that Morningstar have shared is in 2016. Um, you know, in the broad liquid alternative category, there was actually a net outflow of roughly $850 million. 2017, as the concept of complacency uh, was started to get mentioned a bit more, we saw an inflow of about $2.8 billion uh, over the entire course of 2017. And just in the month of January in 2018, we have seen an inflow of $2.8 billion. Wow. So, so, you know, so the answer is, number. yes, people are worried and they're putting their money where their mouth is. That's that's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So so these numbers, you know, we're still early. Right. We're only sort of halfway through February. But, uh, you know, the numbers through the end of January, um, you know, sort of as published by Morningstar, we do think there's been a significant turn in investor behavior based on the flow numbers that we're seeing. And they got to feel smart right now because if they got more short in January and had this event happen in the end of January, February, uh, man, that's uh, that's really interesting. Cleo Chang, so interesting to, to hear this, uh, the notion that the investors are actually uh, got a little more fear going on right now, even though the fear and then the fear index is showing it as well. Cleo Chang is the head of alternative investments at American Century. 
Guess who's back? Back, back, back again. Yeah, guess who's back, everybody? Slim Shady. <laughs> Big Tech is actually uh, back in focus uh, in the markets. We want to talk about that with Elena Popina. She is equity markets reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You know, for a long time in this market environment, the equity market environment, it was, we talked so much about the FANG stocks, whether it was Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and the like, um, that these were your market leaders. That's back? It is back, though. There is a lot of concern right now that you know, the stocks have ran so much over the past year. They have to deliver. They have to live up to the expectations on the earnings side and the profit side. So we're seeing some mixed reaction now that the global equities are rebounding. We've seen some mixed reaction among the tech mega caps. Wait, so which ones are leading? Well, the technology stocks are broadly up right now, but the people I'm talking to are saying to me that, look, there is a lot of concern as to how sustainable this rebound is going to be. Well, you, when you look at some of the biggest uh, advancers today, applied materials are up, Cisco are up, you know, there are some good earnings and some profits that are coming ahead of the estimates. But, you know, on a general perspective, some concern about this group keeping its rally, the pace of this rally, this concern lingers. It's got to help too, Corey, when I- and when we talk about Warren Buffett, you know, beefing up his stake in Apple, things like that. Well, I, w- I would think maybe even more so that this is a risk on. I mean, this is, you know, again, the, the, the absolutely correlated asset of Bitcoin up a lot. Uh, we see uh, uh, CPI news strong at markets rally. And it seems that uh, gr- when risk is on, growth stocks are on. And these are perceived to be growth stocks. It is completely true, but you know we are seeing a lot of the big names like Berkshire Hathaway increasing their stakes in companies like you know, Apple, uh, for example, but at the same time almost closing the stake in IBM. So there is a lot of this there's some kind of shift happening under the surface you know we've seen a lot of big headlines but you know i'm talking to a lot of the experts that are saying to me that we are yet to see some very big announcements or some you know big you know, important data points when it comes to hedge funds increasing or decreasing the stakes in some of the high flyers so are they increasing or decreasing or you we know, don't know yet <laughs> we actually i'm writing a story right this moment which basically looks at the average uh-huh. And on an aggregate, aggregate scale, hedge funds have decreased the uh, stake in the FANG stocks in the fourth quarter of this year, which is a turnaround from in the fourth quarter in the fourth quarter of 2017. Of la- right. So it'll be fascinating too, Corey, right, to see and Elena whether or not right because. They had a tremendous run last year. So you could see them maybe popping out of some of those named names and maybe banking some of their gains at this point. Um, but whether the volatility where we saw them sell off Elena, whether or not they got back into some names because they could get them at a cheaper price. Right. So volatility is subsiding now a little bit, but the hedge funds managers I'm talking to are asking one and the same question. What are the big, the next FANG stocks? What are some of the stocks that have been left behind that have this star potential? What are some of the beaten down names that we can just buy the bargain right now and that can have a 40 plus percent performance over the course of this year? Yeah. And I, and I think that you know, we'll, we'll see what, what I mean. Uh, the, the Apple investment by Buffett is a curious one because, you know, it's a cheap stock by a lot of measures. Uh, and I'm sure that the valuation, and, and there aren't a lot of, as he's pointed out, the Berkshire Hathaway has gotten so big that there's not, they can't get involved in just anything. Um, they've got to have things that are actually big enough where they don't have to be such a giant uh, uh, participant in the stock. But, you know, Apple's trading at, a, at an 18 PE, but that's including tons and tons of cash. And, you know, 1.2 times its earnings growth rate on a not strong earnings year. 
Right. And I'll play the devil's advocate here. We just had Apple's earnings a few uh, days ago. And you know, there was some mixed reaction because there, were, there was some concern about the uh, you know, estimates for this year. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether they would be able to deliver and live up to those expectations. So, you know, the stakes are high. Of course, you know, the numbers, the earnings numbers of Apple and some of the other big companies, earnings are amazing, but the stakes are high. The pressure is really high right now. So it's going to be interesting to see what what happens next in terms of the forecast and the projections. There's a, a conference coming up, too, the Goldman Sachs Tech and Infra- Internet Conference in San Francisco, right? And there's going to be a right. lot of folks pre- presenting, Cisco, AMAT, um, SNAP. Um, I always love these kinds of events. Uh, Corey and I kind of, you know, we'll kind of keep an eye on stuff like this because we do get headlines out of it. Yes, exactly. And we have a few reporters on the West Coast and on the East Coast, you know, attending those conferences, talking to some of the executives. And we will be writing a few, you know, big and small stories. So be on the lookout for some headlines and maybe market moving scoops. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's not like anybody's turning their back completely on the big tech. Not, not, not necessarily. You know, it's just you know we're trying to see where on this you know uh, risk reward curve on the concern about valuation and concern and optimism about the the earnings growth. You know, at which point would you want to buy or at which point is would mm-hmm. you want to sell? And obviously, a, a correction in the stocks market of as much as ten percent uh, made some of the stocks more attractive. So we are seeing you know buying the dip, but it remains a big question of whether hedge funds who are trying to predict the trend, whether they're buying or selling or whether they're holding on to the positions yeah. they have. Yeah. We'd love to yeah, to interesting, interesting times, and uh, and you know, risk on turns into risk off pretty quickly. Maybe quit more <laughs> right. quickly than ever before, as we saw from the market moves last week. So we'll see what this tech on, uh, and how long it becomes tech on and not tech off. We shall see, and you will be watching for us, Lena Papina. Thank you so much, uh, Bloomberg News equity markets reporter in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed it is. Corey Johnson here in Los Angeles. Carol Masser back in New York. And with this drive to the close, Michael Cugino joins us right now, President and Portfolio Manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. It's a mouthful, but it's worth it because his numbers are good. He's got about $3 billion under management and joining us from San Francisco. Uh, Michael, always a pleasure. Uh, How did you do last week? What, what did that feel like to you? I think we did fine, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we suffered in the short term like anybody to some degree, but our drawdown was much less, and we were diversified. So uh, the equity alone sell-off um, didn't harm us as much as it did other people. Tell me about the calls you were getting there from some of your clients, Michael. Um, you know, we didn't get a lot of, you know, a lot of our clients have been preparing for such an event, so I don't know whether it was a real shock. I mean, you know, when you think about it, we haven't had a technical correction before last week or the last couple of weeks since February of 16. And, you know, to me at this point where we sit, uh, the, this correction looks an awful lot like that one, where the bounce back was quick and swift and it didn't change the fundamental outlook that corporate earnings are growing, um, you know, the economy looks good, uh, global growth is improving. Proving probably more than it was 
two years ago. Corporate profits are expected to be better due to the tax cut and business conditions. And so the general premise for stocks is still intact. The only risk being, you know, the cumulative effect of interest rate hikes and how quickly and how many we may get over the course of the year. And I think investors have made the calculus that at this point in time, the impact of interest rates, the cumulative effect, the the rate is not going to be substantial or too quick. And and corporate profits and business conditions outweigh that. Thus, people are buying stocks. And uh, I think it's going to take a while. We are going to get more volatility, but I think we're going to need more to knock people off that perch at the moment. Michael, we've been talking throughout the show, or at least I've been talking throughout the show, about, about how the market reaction to the economic data this week was markedly different from the opposite market reaction of economic data, the same economic data basically last week, that that a, a, a higher wages figure sent the market spiraling down, and that a higher inflation number, the same problem, uh, sent the markets straight up, uh, and particularly in tech, uh, and if you want cryptocurrencies even, uh, which to me is, is, you know, you're talking risk, you got it there. What does that tell you about the market and, and, the, and the, the people's notion of risk right now? You know, Corey, we noted the same thing in our shop where, you know, you had news in either way. I, I'm always nervous about people making uh, – Pure predictions about why markets move one way or the other, because you have so many participants with so many motives. Who really knows? Um, stocks went up because they went up, right? Um, but I think it was interesting to see that an inflation-driven number on wages was potentially the catalyst a couple weeks ago downturn, yet the CPI and the core and all that this week caused barely a budge. Our own view is that the inflation story um, is not a surprise to us at all, both numbers. Uh, we expect it to go up. It's a growth-oriented economy. You have more um, fiscal stimulus. You have better depreciation. Um, you have better business conditions. You have gradually rising interest rates at the moment. Inflation is also a natural byproduct of growth, so long as it's not overheating and too quick. And so while these numbers may be alarming to some, um, the, the, the rate has in, increased a little bit, say, over the last half year to year in terms of inflation. I think more people are noticing it. But for us, it's not really a surprise, and it's expected. And and the, the key is not that there's inflation, but how quickly is it going to rise? How quickly is it going to cause Fed action or market interest rate action? And how quickly could that derail economic growth both here and abroad? So, so Mike, uh, Michael, if I can bump in for a second, what have you, what if anything, have you done differently since the increase in market volatility? When things sold off, did you move into something? Did you add to positions? Did you sell out of anything? We've done very little with this most recent sell-off. Uh, I think we were positioned very well for going into this year, and we've been comfortable with that. We have been buying selectively in a few areas. I was going to uh, say, you weren't adding on when some of that stuff was on sale last week? I mean, if you like being long Facebook as much as you're long, why wouldn't you buy more when it's down? Uh, we, we like the position we have at the moment. And, uh, and there were some names selectively that we were getting into that maybe we were looking at in industry sectors that got beaten down. But, you know, the correction was over so quick, and it was a 10% correction. I'm not sure we're not going to have more volatility in another downdraft. And so I think it's, a, it's a, definitely a chance to take stock of what you own and why. Um, it's a chance to look to make improvements when you can, but, uh, but not act drastically either. And so I think we like where we are, generally speaking. We did make some small changes, um, and uh, and that's been sufficient for us at the moment. Of course, that changes day to day. Tell me about your exposure. You get a lot of exposure to precious metals, right? Gold, um, yep. some silver. Um, tell me, what's the thinking there? Is it because of inflation or what? 
Yeah, the thinking is that, you know, our portfolio, our permanent portfolio is basically a, a wealth creation and maintain, you know, maintenance strategy. And so we look at wealth as not just stocks and bonds. We look at it as a collection of all kinds of different assets that all have different mm-hmm. correlations and interplay between each other. And so the, the properly diversified investor, in our view, needs to be exposed to assets like that, even when they might not be popular or they might be out of favor or whatever. And so from our standpoint, the reason an investor would own gold is a reason they would always own gold. It's an alternative currency and it's an alternative to stocks and bonds. It's a hedge against uncertainty and risk. It's a hedge against uh, hyperinflation and and higher prices. It's a hedge against uh, potentially downdrafts in stock and bond markets. And so it makes sense for investors to have a an exposure to both of those metals. Silver, a little bit more industrial than gold, right. is, but they both have store of value properties. And so I think, um, you know, you, you tend to see that in the long term and we do expect inflation we do think we have not seen a lot of inflation lately um, and that given the growth orientation of the economy we're going to see it so it makes sense to hold some gold gotta run your fund down about two percent putting it in the 83rd percentile uh, among its uh, peers michael cugino of the permanent portfolio family of funds move around motion creates emotion i feel the earth move under my you move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your Movers and Shakers, winners and losers on this Thursday afternoon. Let's start with the S&P 500. I like starting there. Uh, You heard Charlie break down the closing numbers on Wall Street. Stocks pretty much finishing at their best levels of the session. S&P 500, 400 names in the index higher today, 100 lower, 5 unchanged. I want to talk a little bit about EQ2. EQT. Let's try that again. EQT Corporation. Ticker is EQT. It's the number one gainer in the S&P 500 today. It's an E&P exploration and production uh, energy company. And that stock is your number one gainer in the S&P 500 on this Thursday. Uh, Corey, uh, gaining about almost 10%, up $4.83 a share to $53.34. And the company did come out and reported a fourth quarter adjusted EPS that beat the highest estimate that's out there there, uh, and also talked uh, a little bit about the outlook. But uh, the company's CEO says it will accelerate its uh, accelerate its plan to address its share price discount. Uh, had a call with investors today, says its share price doesn't reflect its strength. And so it's rethinking its hedging strategy to live within cash flow. And so looking at the company and looking at the outlook and so making some changes perhaps and maybe yeah, the, just liked it. Yeah, hedging strategies with oil companies always made me nervous that they were – as if it's not hard enough to drill oil, they're also trying to manage the futures markets and understand what the prices are going to be of oil good in the future. Good luck with that, right? Uh, most of them do a pretty good job of it. It's kind of an amazing thing. Hey, I want to uh, mention a company I mentioned yesterday. So uh, I was tweeting a bunch about this Fossil, yes. Fossil Group, and 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 fundamentally, the, you know, the company reported uh, stronger smartwatch sales than uh, people predicted. There's a big short interest in the stock, and so you saw this huge rally of up over seventy percent yesterday. Uh, stock down big today, down eight and a half percent. Now again, after the big move yesterday, I mean, it's just a little, letting off a little bit of steam. 
But I'll just say again that, that you know, after day of analysis of the company, what I walk away with saying is they're moving their business or trying to move their business towards a very sexy uh, notion of the smartwatch. The problem is the smartwatch business is a worse business. The watches are, are uh, have worse margins, worse operating margins, and uh, more of a bad thing is not going to be a good thing in the long run. Uh, the bulls thought so. That was not the case yesterday, but today the stock's selling off about 8.5%, uh, a notable move down for a company whose uh, earnings are shrinking, or actually had no earnings at all last year, and yet has over half a billion, about a half a billion dollars in debt. Hey, you want to talk a little bit about Omnicon? Uh, number two decline, no, forgive me, number one decliner in the S&P 500. That stock down 6.6%. Company reported revenue for the fourth quarter that met the average analyst estimate, so it was $4.18 billion. Uh, there was a range between 413, 427. Um, but I think there's some concerns maybe about the latest earnings report. And so we did see uh, that stock under pressure. Fourth quarter revenue was $4.18 billion. $4.21 billion was actually the estimate we had. And their fourth quarter EPS, a buck oh nine. Uh, but that, again, might not compare with some of the estimates that were out there. Nonetheless, some concerns among investors, and that stock was lower today. Uh, the worst performing stock in the Russell today was Textainer. What's Textainer? I'd never heard of Textainer until today. Textainer is a San Francisco-based company even. They make intermodal containers. And they were out uh, with some news uh, that said uh, the, that uh, their revenue, uh, mis-expectations, uh, but, but more importantly, uh, revenues uh, up only 8%. There was a hope that it would be a lot better than that for the quarter, down 1% year over year. That's uh, at least three years straight of declines for Textainer. Uh, they said in a conference call this morning that additional competition has led to lower returns on investment. Mm -hmm. And the first quarter uh, is often a weak one. They're uncertain how much, uh, how aggressive their competitors will be in the coming uh, year and indeed in the first quarter. Uh, so the stock's selling off big time. Stock was down 18% uh, on the day to $18.75. Uh, Textainer is still a billion one market cap. Um, uh, and uh, they said the current competitive market shouldn't be a surprise. Um, uh, but uh, many uh, of their competitors re-entered the market this year, uh, creating more of these uh, these uh, containers uh, used for international shipping. All right, let's talk about the volatility index report. The VIX um, down about 1% today, uh, closing at 19.03. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day, which is... I'm going down to Bermuda, Corey. I'll, I'll, I'll meet you there. Wait, I'll carry your baggage. Okay, then. We're going to talk about the, baggage. the <laughs> Bank of N.T. Butterfield and Son. This is a company that traces its history back to 1758 when Nathaniel Butterfield set up a trading firm on the island. Butterfield now does business not only in Bermuda, but also in other locations catering to the wealthy, especially the Cayman Islands and the English Channel Island of Guernsey. I'm willing but, to help you with those two, to those trips, too, if you want to check it out some more. Okay, fine, Corey. Just remember, I like you more than Corey does. All right. Butterfield was hit hard in the last decade's global financial crisis and got a $550 million lifeline from Carlyle Group and other investors. Some of them sold stock alongside the bank in its first U.S. public offering, done in September 2016. It's listed under the ticker NTB. Butterfield has climbed as much as 91% since its debut and rose to a record today after the release of fourth quarter results. Earnings and revenue beat analyst average estimates in Bloomberg survey. 
What's more, Butterfield agreed to buy Deutsche Bank's banking and custody business in Guernsey and in nearby island Jersey, as well as the Caymans. Terms of that deal weren't disclosed. Nonetheless, the result was Butterfield's biggest gain ever in U.S. trading. The stock rose 11.5% on the day. But can you say Butterfield five times fast? Butterfield, 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 Butterfield. Dave Wilson, there's nothing you can do. All right, good stuff. Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Ticker is, what was it, Dave? NTB. Stock's up 24% this year. So it's done pretty well. Certainly has, and a big chunk of that came today. Yeah, really did. Okay. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Bloomberg Markets here with Carol Master and Corey Johnson. What was that movie, The Butterfield Eight? Yes. Who was in that? Liz Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor, of course. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.